here's the great thing about the for-profit education world. They drive innovation in education. And that ultimately is good for customers. Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. That was the voice of Brian Rogove, founder and CEO of Singapore-based A-Star Education. Brian is in the for-profit education business, and when you consider the premium that Asian families place on education, it's easy to see how profits might follow. Dissecting the relative strengths and weaknesses of education in Asia is as complex and diverse as the region itself. Perhaps not surprisingly, the more developed markets of Asia, including Japan, South Korea, Hong Kong, and Singapore, ranked well. Less developed markets like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, and the Philippines still struggle. When it comes to public education, quality is oftentimes directly proportional to the level of government spending. Building schools and staffing them with well-versed teachers takes time and money. It's for that very reason that large-scale private equity firms are entering the space. Bering, Blackstone, and KKR are just a few of the many major investors increasing their holdings in education companies worldwide. Asia is in the forefront. My guest this episode ran one of the largest networks of private secondary schools in Asia before stepping out to start up his own firm, A-Star Education. Brian doesn't beat around the bush when talking about education's return on investment. He says that while for-profit education feels like a dirty phrase to those in the West, Asians see the private sector as critical in shoring up public education shortfalls throughout the region. I kicked off our conversation by asking Brian how he got involved in the education space to begin with. Brian Rogoff, it's a pleasure to see you again. We've known each other many, many years, and we're sitting here at 1880, comfy chairs in the back. I now and again will hold conversations back here. Thanks for joining. Very glad to be here and, and very glad to be with you. I love your podcast and glad to be part of it. Well, I'll take that. Thanks so much. Um, listen, we're going to talk about education is a, is a theme that just keeps coming up over and over. And we've done a few things recently. And I want to talk to you specifically about uh, the business of education, the economics of education, because what's good, what's not, the future of jobs, you know, uh, you know different styles of education come up. But there's really is a wonderful economic uh, argument emerging. And as you rightly point out, education is hot. Can you tell us why? Uh, yes, I mean, e education is hot. I guess it's been hot now for a decade, but but I would say particularly in this part of the world where, where we live in Asia, education is, is the theme of the day, it seems, for, for every private equity fund and, and their mother. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's hot for a number of reasons. Um, if, if I started at the macroeconomic level, particularly in this part of the world, in Southeast Asia and in China, we have the classic you know, story of, of a rising middle class and affordability. At the same time, and probably with the exception of a country like Singapore, we have generally average to poor quality public education. So you have the combination of this rising middle class who can afford to pay for private school or private school enrichment, and you have, let's call it questionable public school systems, not in every country, as I said, Singapore being the exception. And what that naturally leads to is very strong demand for high quality private schools. And so what's happened, particularly in the last decade, is you know, initially it was a bunch of entrepreneurs, local entrepreneurs in countries like Vietnam and Thailand and Malaysia and, and other markets setting up schools because they saw the market opportunity either for their own children and what started off as little startup schools then became thousand student schools and then of course you see, well geez, a thousand student to $25,000 a pop becomes a 25 million revenue business at high profitability and the commercial opportunity then existed. So it hits the radar for private equity. You bet. Uh, you bet. It, and I think you know, for, for various reasons, not in the least, at least if you have a K-12 school, and by K-12 we mean, you know, primary school and secondary school, 
you get recurring annuity streams. You know, if, again, probably with the exception of a market like Singapore, which is dom predominantly expats who are here for an average of 3.8 years. Um, if you go to a market like Vietnam and you're, you have local Vietnamese or you go to Thailand, you have local Thais, they could be with you for 10, 12, 13 years of an annuity stream as long as you're delivering quality of academic provision. And that becomes very nice. It becomes a predictable model with great negative working capital and cash flow profiles. And, and of course, this, uh, this shadows or parallels the rise in economic growth in all these countries across the region. Uh, you bet. I mean, it's interesting. When you look at Southeast Asia in particular, um, if you would have looked at it 10 years ago, um, still quite nascent in its development of the private schools market. Today, you know, some markets are hotter than others. I mean, obviously, Vietnam's on fire. Singapore is, is probably less so now because there's a lot of capacity that's come into the market. Indonesia is, is, is the great hope that will never be. You know, it, it, there's rising middle class, but there's lots of complexities in owning schools in Indonesia. You know, Malaysia is an interesting place. There, there's demand there. There's also supply. Uh, Myanmar is up and coming, but I think the demand will, will be more in the 10-year the horizon than 5-year horizon. Um, and then, look, you've got China, which has still got amazing demand. But, and the government, I think, has, has also realized that, which is why in the last sort of six, eight months, you've also seen a crackdown from a regulatory perspective. Uh, if, on new private schools. On new private schools, how the ownership is structured. They've effectively banned, uh, you know, listed K-12 companies going forward. So we'll see what happens to the existing ones. So this is overcapacity issue, or it's just basically sticking with the curriculum and the national agenda? I think it's it's a little bit political. It's more it's more um, sticking in lines with you know controlling the nationalistic agenda, making sure that the national curriculum is followed. I think also because it's grown so much, it's a huge industry in China. I mean, whether you're looking at English language training, which is a huge business in China, hundred billion dollar market. K twelve is a is a massive market there, so it's now on the radar of the government officials. We're five, 10 years ago, it wasn't because it was smaller. Now it is. And so what always happens is, you know, you pop your head above the parapet and guess what? You're going to probably get some regulatory um, uh, issues that pop up. And, and now you're seeing that. The market opportunity is still there, but I think people are a bit more cautious now. But you can't deny in this part of the world, it's still the single largest market outside of the United States for uh, education in terms of private spend and, and size of the market. So and it's very single, single child market, uh, they're going to throw all their disposable income to making sure the best possible education comes to that child. You bet. I mean, grandparents paying for that child, you know, people working three jobs. And, you know, the best thing that happened to, to commercial education companies is them sort of revising the one child law and making it possible to have two children. Where you go, oh, hey, I have two annuity streams. So it's, uh, you know, there, there's a positive to that as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, you know, for years when I was growing up, the idea of private education was anathema. If you were, if there was a private school, it was typically nonprofit. Um, and then this guy crept in from Tennessee, and he did something called Channel One. I don't know if you remember this. And the idea was putting advertisements and televisions in the classroom. Chris Whittle, I think. Sorry, Chris Whittle. I think. Chris Whittle. And, and you know, I met the Avenue School. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and he tried to kind of bring that back at one point. But I remember the initial result re reaction was ballistic. Parents said, "What advertisements in the classroom? You got to be kidding me!" But he he had this notion that if you could get better content and better curriculum, you get a better result. And then it took years, it shut down, and then it started to creep back. What are your views on this? You know, it's interesting. Here's the crazy thing. Look, I, I grew up as a, a public school child, right? And I, and I guess I turned out okay as a result of that. I happened to be. But we'll, we'll wait. We'll see. <laughs> I happen to be in a very lucky postcode, so that helps. You have good public schools if you're in a good postcode. But here's the interesting thing. It really depends on the market. So there's a perception, particularly in what I would call Western markets, the United States, the United Kingdom, many many parts of, of continental Europe, which is 
because of the way that education has come up in terms of public education, people feel that it's a right, right? That, that the right to education is, is a public right as a taxpayer. A utility. A utility. Yeah. That, that's one way of thinking about it. Whereas in this part of the world, with the exception of Singapore, okay, people don't view it as a right. They, they view it, first of all, they, they view education as, as many people should, which is it's, it's your passport to success, mm. okay? And we can get into a whole other discussion about the future of education. And so the, there's less what I would call esoteric issues that you would see normally attached in a country like the United States, where there's lots of emotion about it's a basic fundamental right to a free education. Mm. Why is it? You know, and, and I say that because that is where the big debate is in the United States that stifled advancement. I mean, if you let me take the state of California, okay? The state of California in the 1970s was the number one state in the United States for quality public schools in the United States. Today, it's, I think, 34. I may be wrong, but it's, it's not even in the top 20. Precipitous slide. Massive. Yeah. And part of that is that, you know, and again, I don't want to get into like a union bashing because there's very positive benefits for teachers unions, but if you can't uh, performance manage teachers and you can't develop things uh, in a way that's progressive to where the future of education is going, how do you expect to deliver quality of education and how do you expect to have good outputs from, from students? And so in this part of the world, we're quite lucky and, and that's why private education has, has taken up the, the pace at which it has far more than you'd see in the United States or Europe or even Australia is because those biases don't exist. People just sit there and go, okay, I can afford it. The public education system is average. Maybe it sucks. I'm going to try to get the best education possible for my kids. And whether that's private for profit or whether that's private not for profit. And by the way, I could give you examples of horrible for-profit operators and amazing for-profit operators. And I could do the same thing for not-for-profit schools. There's some amazing not-for-profit schools. And frankly, there's some really bad not-for-profit schools. So the profit motive isn't what drives quality of provision. There's good examples of good operators and bad operators on both sides. But but ultimately, I, I think you kind of have to get yourself out of the mindset of, of you know, public education, basic public free, free public education is a right. Maybe it is in some countries where you pay 55 or 60% tax, but that's not most of the world. So, so you're saying across most Asian markets, this idea of like uh, education is a right, is something they never had the luxury of having because education was all mediocre at best. Singapore side, Absolutely. and maybe even Hong Kong. And now you're looking at a situation where there's this willingness and this desire to spend money at all costs because family and education, as you say, the passport issues are, are so essential. But also I see this branding, right? You have these, all these schools at both K-12, to but also at the university level coming in, joining forces, branding, and putting up these extraordinary infrastructures in order to support kids. What's your view on what attracts the Asian parent to certain schools? and why it's a great question uh, especially when you get into school brand I mean to some degree you, you could you could argue that it's not much different than a retail brand you know why does someone spend a fortune on a you know a, a, um, a Louis Vuitton purse or you know why did, why does someone buy a, a fancy watch because of the brand you know do they see it that way Brian I, you can't generalize and say everyone sees it that way but I would say in this part of the world we're, we're much more brand conscious than we would be in, in other parts of the world and, and brand does matter however I would say that again there's good examples of branded school operators that you know are, are a brand and there's nothing underneath you know the emperor has no clothes so to speak and I would say there's there's other branded um, you know schools uh, that put a lot of substance in there so again it, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag but I would say that generally uh, brand does matter um, it can it can be an it can have an impact and, and you know if I thought of a couple examples in this part of the world so 
there's a tiny little island off the, the coast of, of Korea, uh, South Korea, called Jeju. Okay, and Jeju set up many years ago, uh, basically a, an education zone, and they invited and actually the government helped fund uh, several schools, including North London Collegiate, which is a very prestigious school in, in the UK. Amazing IB diploma scores, one of the top scoring schools in the world, right up there with Anglo Chinese here in Singapore. And uh, by the way, I think in the UK it happens to be an all-girls school. In, in Jeju, it happens to be co-ed. Uh, and in fact, actually, they're about to open in Singapore as, as well. For, for avoidance of doubt, I have no economic interest in this, so I'm not promoting them one way or the other. But but it's it's the perfect example of great brand in the UK. I mean, really a top a top school, um, well executed in Korea. You know, they 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 did a great job with governance. Quality of provision is pretty good. The academic outputs are there. Let's see how they do in, in Singapore, but so far. And, and then there's other examples, which I, I won't pick on any particular names, but I could give you other examples where they've expanded rapidly. You know, they're, they're there in brand, but let's say, you know, the, the quality of provision is, is maybe not, not, not as great. And, and I could give you examples of public schools that are, that are the same way as well. So I think brand does matter, um, but it's not everything. I mean, like, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, is, it, is, it, is it to the degree that obviously the output is what university can my child get into a, uh, as a result of test scores, as a result of the training they received at this school, isn't that pretty much the, the, the nexus around which all decisions are taken among most Asian families? I, most families generally, not, not just in Asia, but here's the interesting thing. It depends, and it depends on a couple of factors. First of all, it depends on the age of your child, okay? So the decision you make as a parent to enroll your child in a private school, private K-12 school, you pick different reasons in kindergarten than you do in primary school. In, in kindergarten, it's, is my child happy? Are they making friends? In elementary school or primary school, it's, are they happy? Are they making friends? And are they getting some of the basics there to prepare them for secondary school? When you get to secondary school, then it's all about outcomes and university matriculation. Mm -hmm. And so, and that can be, you know, if you have a full K-12 school where you have all that in one school, well, you may like the school in elementary, but you may not like it in secondary. Maybe they're really good at elementary and the secondary provision sucks. Mm. So it depends on, on when. And I think there are some schools that are very, very good at, at the university and career preparation side. And I think that, I think going forward, the interesting thing, and, and where I actually see a lot of opportunity in this part of the world is really focusing on the quality of uh, secondary schools, because I, I don't think, with the exception of maybe some schools in Singapore, around the region, there's a, there's a, a, a lack of what I would call very good quality um, high schools or secondary schools. There's some good ones, but you know, generally they're they're okay. And I think that um, there's a great opportunity to to really you know provide a very good university preparation, so that could be inclusive of better college counseling. And look. Full disclosure, we own one of the largest college counseling companies in the U.S., um, get presence in Asia as well. And the thing that I've learned in that business in the two years we've owned it is, wow, there's a lot more to it than you think in terms of, you know, getting in, into the school of choice. And by the way, there's a lot of choice and you don't have to just think about the top 25 universities. And let me give you an example. And I think when we had a, a salon um, discussion several months ago, I may have quoted this statistic, but here's an interesting thing. If you look at the publicly available data, which is great in the United States, this data is available, and you look at lifetime earnings uh, of university graduates in the United States, and you look at, and you, you kind of do a present value of that, of graduates of the top 25 universities in the United States. So let, let's say, uh, these aren't exact, but let, let's say that the lifetime value of earnings is a million dollars if you go to a top 25 university. Between 26 and 100, okay, it drops from a million to say 650,000, 700,000. So that's a big drop, but actually, Here's the interesting thing. 
between the top 100 to 200, it only drops from 650 to say 450, 500. So when you then think about think about that, that's 200 universities, less 25, that aren't as competitive to get into, and you don't have to do these crazy Rick Singer bribing people and Lori Laughlin type scandals. <laughs> um, there's some great universities. Yeah. 175 of them. By the way, there's 3,000 in the United States. That yeah. doesn't include Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and other places in the UK. And you don't have to spend a fortune. And by the way, if you do things the right way, you can probably get a scholarship or some financial aid so that you're not saddled with student debt. And guess what? It's not going to make that much difference in your lifetime value of earnings, but it's still getting a college degree is still your ticket to you know, a better life, yeah. no so matter what. So slight discount on that earning potential, but a lot of other additional benefits. A, a lot of other, a lot of other, you yeah. know, and we're, we're talking the top 25. So, so. so I love this. So, so basically the way we should be looking at colleges is a return on investment. Absolutely. I, yeah. It is. Because otherwise, why would you pay? I mean, th think about it. Even take well, a... I don't know, becoming better citizens, contributing in other ways, becoming more broad-minded, not being polarized in political debates. I don't know, tweeting less. I can think about a thousand things that would actually be reasons to go to a good uh, university that trained you to think differently and act better. I agree. But, but maybe a four-year university at $40,000 a year, is, is there's less expensive ways of doing yeah. it. And by the way... It, I, I will tell you, I think there, what I like about what I see in the future of, of post-secondary education is I do think there's some online components that are interesting, although I think, you know, I, I can't see the value of paying $40,000 a year for an online education. I mean, I, having, having gone through a brick and mortar, you know, undergrad and graduate school program, I see the value of the socialization. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, how you look back and reflect on your experience, but I look back and say, the best thing I got out of undergrad and the best thing I got out of my MBA program was the people. You know, yeah, the, the, I could have learned the content reading the book and listening to some lectures, but actually the socialization and working in groups, that was the value I got, the soft skills, you know, what, what, we, you know, what we call, the, you know, kind of the, the EQ, right? You know, I, I kind of agree, but I also say I learned to think and I learned to write. And those were actually lifelong, enormously powerful tools that I've been able to leverage in all kinds of ways. And, and I would say those skills could only come in an environment that was actually giving me the constant feedback loop to be able to be a better problem solver um, than I otherwise would have been. Look, I, I can't remember if I, if I said this to me. To that point, I actually think the value of a liberal arts degree going forward will be more valuable than it's been in the past. And, and part of that is because... You want people to have the creativity. You want them to have the adaptability. You, you, you want them to, you know, master their own future. You, you want them to really have those soft skills that a liberal arts education uh, instills in people. And, you know, so my, my hope is that we don't see a whole bunch of closures of, of more liberal arts schools because you need a balance of both. You definitely need the STEM, okay? The, the, you need some basic skills, but not everyone needs to, We don't need 8 million engineers. Mm. We need people that can also be, be soft skills thinkers as well. Do you have a situation where people are chasing this golden hoop, you know, in the idea of being or getting their kids to make it into the top universities and being prepared to pay top dollar even through K through 12, but then in, in, into the university itself, which ultimately, given the way that the world is shifting and the future of jobs, uh, is going to be asking something else of us? Well, look at, look at the example of the evidence that we can look at today. Uh, look at Varsity Blues, the scandal, okay? USC, don't get me wrong, USC is a great school. 30 years ago, it was called the University of Spoiled Children, okay? Today, you gotta pay a half a million dollars to bribe your kid to get into USC. 
it's mind-boggling. Yeah. Okay. What went wrong? <laughs> Where do I start? Right. I'll give you another example. So I, I was I was at the uh, Milken Conference in May, and uh, a few years ago I was on a panel there um, with Gene Block, who's the Chancellor of UCLA, and I happened to see him over this education lunch, and he's a great guy, and we were talking about how uh, selective UCLA has become. Here's a couple statistics he gave me for this this intake of, of this cohort this August, August of 2019. They had 175,000 applications to UCLA. I just want to say that again. 175,000 applications to UCLA. For how many available spots? 4,000. Of which, by the way, Steve, half of them by law have to be California citizens. Okay? Because it's a UC system. Now, if you're an international student, by the way, even an out-of-state student, and let's say you take out 50,000 California residents applied, you have a better chance of getting into Harvard than you do of getting into UCLA. So what's going on with this? Look, part of it is, uh, you know, it's, universities don't, <laughs> don't have the commercial motive to expand capacity significantly, right? Mm-hmm. And by the way, UCLA is a good example. They would love to expand and be able to take more people, but they happen to sit between Bel Air and Beverly Hills. And last I checked, real estate's pretty damn expensive yeah. there. So they really can't add any more physical space. So they're capacity constrained. Um, so, which makes them more desirable and, of course, you know, uh, makes them, by definition, more selective. Um, the same thing with Harvard, where, where they are. Now, Harvard, could they, add, could they add more? But no, it's not part of their, their DNA. So what you're seeing is you're seeing people realize that, particularly for the top 25 universities, everyone wants to go for those because they see the perception and a real benefit of, of, of more lifetime value of earnings. And everyone forgets about the other, you know, 3,000 some odd universities that exist. So we're all focused. We all think our children are more brilliant than they actually are. We all think that by going to a top 25 undergraduate university, we're going to set them up for life. And to some degree, there's definitely some advantage to that. But the reality of it is, I look at it today as an employer. And the 20 years that I've been employing people, I can't think of a handful of occasions, particularly for, you know, senior executives, where I've ever asked them where they went to undergrad nor have I asked them what degree they majored in. And what, what, in fact, even when I look now, I kind of, I'm assessing what are their soft skills? You know, can they work with teams? Are they adaptable? And I think the way that, that the systems are today, I, I would say that universities have not adapted to the skills training that we're gonna need for the, the, the workforce of tomorrow. So unless you're going to a top 25 university, you're gonna try to leverage the network you get in there to go get whatever job you are, the reality of it is the best thing you can do is to try to find a university that offers the courses that you like, that sets you up with the skills that you're going to need to get your first job. I may be asking even a more fundamental question, Brian, which is really, um, do we need universities at all? And I know it's coming up in the press. We're seeing a lot about it. But I'm, I'm going to just go throw this out. Oil and gas. They talk a great game about clean tech, renewable energy, the whole bit. But every day, they're pumping oil. And because it's what they do, it's what they know, it's where they make the money, and therefore, why would they change it? But we all know that that's basically only one road. There's no return path on this one. I'm asking the same thing about education. I mean, are we driving down a path, you know, setting expectations, driving incomes to the point where, or driving requirements or payments for, for this type of education, and we're going to end up in a situation where the people who are being trained at the top are actually not able to actually make the changes or adapt to a world that requires them to be fundamentally different in the way that they're engaging. I know it's a big, you know, metaphysical question here, but I really do want to know whether or not there's room to do radical experiments in education at this stage. 
and whether or not Asians should be thinking about this way instead of it's a branded opportunity and my kid can make it. It's a lot of that question. So let me try to unpack that a little bit. I guess first I would start off, and I, and I guess I would preface it by saying, I think particularly in the United States, which has the largest amount of universities of any country in the world, right? There's, there's over 3,000, although I think it's just dropped below 3,000, which, which, by the way, is an important point to make, which is that there will be a lot of universities over the next decade that will fail. You've already started to see many liberal arts colleges fail or merge. You're going to see more of that. And we're going to get into the economics of that student-teacher ratio in just Absolutely. a minute. Um, so so I, I think that, that those universities that don't innovate will die. Uh, there's some that are smarter that see the opportunity to take what they're doing and go online. Uh, I have mixed views about online education, both positive and negative. But um, So I think you'll see more university failures and closures uh, because their economic model makes no sense um, or the product that they're offering does no, no longer meets the requirements of, of the market. Uh, I would say the other thing that you have to keep in mind, and particularly when it comes to post-secondary education, but education as a whole, is when you talk about the idea of change management, you might as well be speaking a foreign language because education and change management are you know, diametrically opposed uh, forces in the world. Explain that. Well, look, generally what you find, um, this is a generalization. There's plenty of examples of, of where this is not the case, but I'll make a generalization, which is that teachers are passionate about what they do. University professors are passionate about what they do, whether it's research or otherwise. They, they're, they're not in it for economic reasons. You don't become a teacher to, to, to get rich. You become a teacher because it's something that you want to do. You need to be paid fairly for it, but it, it's, it's not, you're not doing it for, for reasons of economic um, uh, drive. And they're passionate about their, their kids. Um, I mean, that's the great fortune of having spent so much time now in, in the education sector is teachers really love what they do. And they really love to see the success of the students that they teach. And, and that's what they're passionate about. And so they're also then resistant, and not for the wrong reasons, by the way, to change management, because they want to vet, if you will, that the changes that are being proposed will have a positive impact on, on, on children's lives. And so if you kind of looked at it in a normal world, you'd, if, if you were a private equity person, you'd say, well, look, I'm going to buy this you know, coal business, and I'm going to cut these jobs, and I'm going to make these changes and make it more efficient. It's not that you can't do that in education, but you have to think about, ultimately, how does this impact the quality of the education? Because at the end of the day, people vote with their feet. Um, what does this mean for how do I bring the teachers alongside? In, in universities, uh, th there is a general resistance to change, generally, way more so than K-12. K-12 is, is more adaptable to change at universities. But universities, the, the way they're set up now in the United States, a lot of them are more research-oriented. Professors don't want to lecture a bunch of students. They want to go concentrate on the research and get their tenure and all that sort of stuff. The real question is, is that right for students? Mm. I mean, I, I, well, it's a good question, but I, I also, you know, it's interesting about this change management and resistance. You can argue, frankly, you know, the healthcare industry. I mean, doctors are pretty, uh, you know, uh, clear. You, teachers. Sorry, doctors and educators. In fact, actually, when I when I, when I look to recruit people, yeah. I look for people that have actually spent time in either the hospitality or medical industry because doctors and teachers are very similar. They're both artisans, yeah. right? They're both passionate about what they do. There you go. And we see transformations from public health in Asia to private health, and all of the ripping and tearing that goes with it. But change is coming. And I guess what I would ask you is that if you look down um, at, at, you know, the economics of education and you think about um, commercialization, is it full bore uh, applicable to education? Are there any caveats where maybe education should be given a little bit of a discretion to be different from your average for-profit industry? 
You know, it's a great question. Um, I, I, what I would say is, first of all, I think it depends a lot on the country. And I also think it, it depends a lot about what is the education service. So, so as an example, let's look at the Middle East. Actually, that's a really good example. If you look at Dubai and Abu Dhabi, so they actually have gone completely the opposite of every other country in the world. Their entire education system is private. Right. So when you look at Dubai, like all the schools are private schools. You say opposite, but I feel the trend is more towards increased in private around the world. Is it not? I, I, in Asia, yes. Yeah. But but even in markets like Vietnam, there's still pl- if you looked at private as a percentage of total education in K twelve, still a fraction of, of the total in, in enrollment. Whereas in, so as a percentage, as a percentage. Yeah. Whereas in 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 the Middle East, particularly in, in the UAE. It is like 95% of the education, and, and, and it's subsidized by the government for those that are you know, kind of UA nationals. And, and I think generally it's actually worked pretty well, and they put in a good regulation, and, and they, they do quality insurance inspection. So I, I think it's actually a pretty good case study in a small market of, of what can be done well. Um, and you would determine the success of that based on the outcomes, the students, where they're going, their success rates. How do you determine that? Or just pure economics in terms of it's just a better, more manageable model of education than the not-for-profit or the public? Look, I think ultimately you have to look at outcomes, right? And of course, the issue is what outcomes are you looking at, right? And how you measure those outcomes is different by grade level, right? So it's very easy to measure an outcome you can, in high school. You can say, well, here's what I got on my IB diploma. Here's what I got on my APs. Here's my IGCC or A-level score. That's one data point. How do you do that when someone's in kindergarten, grade one, grade two? Um, you know, it's very difficult to do that. Well, you know, wow, I got my kid's report card. You know, like, uh, wow, what's the outcome? Yeah. So what, what I like what they've done in the UAE is they've used, kind of used a UK inspectorate type of you know, framework where they, they do school inspections, right? And, and they look at you know, quality of teaching. And yeah, it doesn't take all the boxes, but I think relative to other systems, it does. And, and then they give the school a rating. And then, by the way, depending on what your rating is, if you don't score outstanding, you can't raise your fees. Mm-hmm. They cap your fees. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so when you think about like then this, because most of these operators in the UAE are all, in fact, almost all of them are, are for profit, right? It actually gives you a good commercial motive to drive outcomes, mm. to drive quality of the academic provision, because you're not going to be able to raise your fees and now you make more margin um, unless you deliver good quality academics. Are there markets in Asia where something like that would fly, where it would go 95% profit or private? Um, it's a good question. Uh, you know, probably the underdeveloped markets. Yeah. You know, is the you know if I looked at a country like Myanmar yeah. or Cambodia, it's still early enough that they could probably go that route. And and look, that would be an interesting discussion to start having with the regulatory authorities. I think Vietnam, uh, that will be tough um, because I I, I think as the market grows, naturally private will just become a larger share. And what I think you'll see is is more regulatory oversight, which which I think is not necessarily a bad thing, by the way, is, is why I think there can be an over, much like there can be in many countries, sometimes you don't want to see regulatory do overstretch. But, but I do think in Vietnam, I, w- I would expect more oversight over the years as, as private education becomes more. But I, I think it's, it's too much of a stretch to say that private is, is, will be the, the be-all and ends-all there. I would say that the, the other thing, I, I, I guess if I looked at, I think Indonesia, forget it. I don't see that happening. Um, Hong Kong's an interesting market. I mean, Hong Kong is kind of like that. If you look at English Schools Foundation up until the last two years, English Schools Foundation was kind of like subsidized by the government. Now the subsidy has gone away. And, and by the way, they, they now, of course, raise fees 35% to make up for the, for the right. subsidy. Right. So they, they tried it as a hybrid model. And, and it actually worked pretty well up until recently when the, when the government sort of changed how, how they look at that. Um, 
So I don't see any obvious market, particularly in Southeast Asia, that sort of lends itself to that other than, say, it's still early enough in truly frontier markets like a Myanmar or Cambodia. The question is, will the government have the balls to sort of do that? And that, that's a pretty big leap um, to do that. Brian, another question. Is it easier to buy a school or build a school? Depends on the price. <laughs> I knew you'd say that. Well, you know, um, <laughs> look, I, I've done them both, right? I created a couple of pretty and, and let me Let me explain what I mean by that. Because I, I think in some ways you talked about this change management, and a lot of these entrepreneurs, families building uh, schools, they grow, they become profitable, and then they become targets for larger organizations, bring them into a bigger network. Um, I, I guess, and then what you have to do is go through a process, even though they have the brand and they have the revenue and they have the throughput and the admin, you also have to kind of shift the way that teachers think and admi administrators administer. So I guess that's what I'm asking. How hard is it to shift that mentality across Asia-Pacific when it comes to schools? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, having done it for almost 12 years in this part of the world, I had no gray hair when I started doing it. So, so it, you can tell that it's, it's had its impact. But look, it's always easier to start something new because you, you don't have to do change management because you're starting something new. But, it, you know, you're building... A, I mean, look, when I created Stanford American, right, there was nothing. We, we could have done a brand, but we created it from nothing. 3,300 kids later, it was successful, painful along the way. Also bought a lot of schools over the last 10 years, too, and, and were able to do successful change management agendas. I, I would say that in a greenfield school, startup school, you don't even need to have a change management agenda. You can do... So in, in that context, it's easier. That said, I think if you bring in the right leadership in a school, particularly the head of school, um, and, and I think a, a good team who can see your strategic vision for where you want to take that school, they can drive that alignment. But you then have to have this timeline of expected to take three years. You know, if you want to drive a change management agenda in a school, it's three years, which is why I, when I often talk to, to, to my investors and other private equity investors about investing in this space, I say, you got to have a long-term mentality. This is unless you're really lucky, it is not a three to five year hold. It's like a five to seven. And, and that's not because greenfields take longer. It's, it's literally to drive value creation, to get that operating leverage, to make this change management. It just takes that long to get buy-in and to actually then implement changes. It's not like you're buying a widgets company where you can just say, I'm gonna shift manufacturing from you know the Maquiladoras to Guangzhou, and I'm gonna shift people around. This is a people business. Remember that at the end of the day, we're educating children. Okay, it's a service we provide, you know, outcomes are, are, are important and these are people's lives and, and, uh, and you have people that are delivering that service and ultimately you have to bring people with you. If you could think about the way high schools operate today and the types of changes that would be required in order to better equip kids to function in the world, what one or two things do you think could and should change within the high school curriculum? Oh, where do I start? Um, Look, even for us, I mean, I, I'm a big believer in having the combination of soft skills and hard skills. And what I don't think exists yet today in most high schools, you can take the STEM type of class. You can do AP physics, you can do this, you can do IB uh, physics, you can do that sort of stuff. There's some people that are experimenting with project-based learning, which is basically like teamwork. Um, I'd love to see much more advancement in soft skills development in high school. Um, and how would you categorize that? You know, there's a number of ways that you can do it, right? So, like, I think about my own children, and what do I want? I want my kids to be adaptable, you know, because guess what? Life changes, and you need to know how to adapt to that. I want them to understand how to work in a group with people, because that's the real world, right? Projects. 
working collaboratively with people. I want to give my kids confidence, right? Because ultimately, when you think of like, what are these skills you need? You need to have confidence. You need to be adaptable. You need to be creative, you know? You need to be comfortable um, to sort of adapt to new situations. And, and I think often what happens, particularly when, when you look at the way that most high school systems are set up, is they're set up to say, okay, learn these basic set of skills. Okay, here's math, here's English, here's this, you know, a bit of creative arts just to give you a little bit of flavor, but then go and learn more content, okay? Yeah. And then hopefully you meet some people and you socialize and then let's see how you go. And then by the way, go to graduate school to figure things out. Mm -hmm. I think what we need to do is bring university earlier into the, the high school mix. And, and what I mean by that is let's start encouraging students to go out and do whether it's a semester overseas, whether it's go study in a summer program at a university, you know, when you're in middle school. You know, so exposure. Exposure. You know, How does that serve the, the, the soft skills? Well, think about this. I mean, and again, I, I say this in a completely self-interested way, of course, because one of the businesses we own runs summer programs at universities in the United States and uh, the UK. But think about the experience you get as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 16-year-old going onto a university campus for two or three weeks, living in a dorm, learning some skills, interacting with people, being independent for the first time in your entire life. Do you think that's a positive or negative? Oh, generally a positive. Think about taking a gap year. Mm. You know, I mean, look, it's not that common for U.S. people, but like I think about my own kids and think the best thing I can give them is sending them on as many experiences as I possibly can before they get to college. And then, frankly, I hope that they want to do a gap year. It, it does reinforce this thing. And it, this, this comes through, and, and, and I'm not arguing against it. I'm actually kind of on the fence on this one, that all... All arrows point towards university. That the, the, the purpose of private education, K to 12, is to get people prepped and ready for university. But the world is saying there are alternatives. In fact, there's large uh, movements right now to kind of break away from that. Uh, apprenticeships, uh, you know, on the job. Uh, Northeastern combining the idea of doing the academic and then the work, you know, for over a five. I guess it's five year versus four year term. Do, do these things have are they applicable in the high school context, or is it just Listen, we're just trying to get these kids through the basics so they can function in the world and then make their choices. The way the system is set up today is to prep for university. Okay? I think, there's, I think one of the most undervalued opportunities, particularly in the United States, is community colleges. Okay? And the reason why I say that is that, first of all, there are some amazing community colleges. They happen to cost you know, a tenth of, of what a four-year university degree does. And by the way, you can learn all the basics that you're going to get in a four-year university save yourself a lot of money and then by the way after two years you can transfer to any school you want including the highly selective schools much easier than you could applying as an undergrad it's a bit of a trick isn't it it's a bit of a trick and I've, it's funny i looked at a business a couple years ago that basically very smart kid uh who put together a hack and basically wrote down all the transfer credit systems and an algorithm and figured out a way to basically game the system and <laughs> so I, which community college for what period of time which courses and, and he so he, yeah. he ended up going to harvard and and he he said i spent uh, fifty thousand dollars going to harvard for four years why because he really did all these transfer credits and then ultimately graduated from harvard smart kid and so look i think the way the system is set up today is it, it's really set up to prepare you for university that's not for everyone, but by the way, I still go back to the fundamentals, which is that all things being equal, if you look at your lifetime value of earnings, the, 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 the value of a college degree will still set you apart, um, and you'll still pick up soft skills and hard skills. That said, I think there's a huge opportunity to bring you know, coding and other vocational technical skills into high school that 
are better off for some people. Every, every student is different. Like I look at my three kids. Now my youngest is too young to assess, but I just look at my, my two you know, daughters, you know, eight and six, and they have different passions. They learn a different, you know, one is passionate about languages. The other is like a math genius, you know? So I'm definitely not gonna push math skills on the one that likes languages and languages on the one that likes math. And so they'll find- Why not? Maybe rounding them out isn't a bad idea. What do you think of that? Well, look, I have become a tiger parent living in this part of the world for so many years, but you know, and they do a lot of enrichment, I can tell you as well. But like, you know, look, I, I, think, I think you have to have that balance. And, and, I, and I think that the great thing for parents going forward is that with this focus and attention on, on it being a great investment, you're gonna see a lot more options available to people that are gonna be more innovative because here's the great thing about the for-profit education world. They drive innovation in education. And that ultimately is good for customers. Um, you know, In the not-for-profit world, they're not driven by the same motives. So they don't aren't really looking for innovation except for the really innovative not-for-profit schools. And I can probably count them on you know one hand around the world. So the great thing, the good and the bad thing, is that you're going to see a lot of innovation, you'll see a lot of failures, you'll see a lot of successes, but ultimately I think it's going to be great for parents because it's going to give a lot of options to them for whether it's you know, overseas study experiences, other experiences, to develop soft skills for, for kids in middle school and high school. This does nothing but benefit their children. Brian, you're a font of educational knowledge. I thank you so much for coming in and spending time today. Look, great to be here. Uh, Love the industry and uh, great spending time with you. This is Steve Stein and you've been listening to Inside Asia. That was my conversation with Brian Rogov, a for-profit education advocate and founder and CEO of A-Star Education. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, we unpack some of the comments you've just heard and pose a few questions of our own. When it comes to education, there's little doubt that, like healthcare, Asians who can afford it will spend an increasing proportion of their income on educating their children. The stories of Asian students and their record-breaking test scores are the thing of legend, which might suggest that schools in Asia are that much better than those elsewhere. But that's not necessarily the case. Indeed, throughout much of the region, it's the supplementary after-school services that oftentimes give Asian students that edge. Whether it's higher math training, violin lessons, or preparatory testing, there's an ecosystem of for-profit services that feed the education beast. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's only just getting started. Core curriculum, however, and the school systems that form the basis are not keeping up. This is where for-profit schools like Nord Anglia, Cognita, and GEMS are stepping in, acquiring and in some cases building new schools in markets that can afford them. It's a cash flow intensive business, and as Brian points out, capture a student in K-1, and if all goes well, you can look forward to 12 years of recurring revenue. The return on investment for players with capital to invest is significant and long-term. The ROI for students, however, is increasingly coming into question. What do I mean by this? Well, if you consider Brian's logic, parents might justify enrollment of their child in a top-ranked school if they can determine the so-called lifetime value of that child's future earnings. I don't know about you, but if my parents had done this when I was a kid, I wonder if I'd be a disappointment to them today. But seriously, there's a bigger question at stake, and it speaks to the nature of traditional education and whether schools are effectively equipping students for the future. Scores on standardized tests are still the litmus test for admissions to university. Teachers, some of whom may not yet know about the internet, are still testing for rote memorization. And parents, ah yes, parents, they're the biggest culprits of all. Make no mistake, for them, education is an investment. And making money, well, that's the measure of success, isn't it? 
That may sound crass to the Western ear, but in Asia, where we're just one generation removed from poverty and underdevelopment, money is the measure. An education program that can improve the odds is, in no uncertain terms, worth the investment. If you think about it, is investment in education really any different from the purchase of a home or a stock portfolio? Get past the dis-ease associated with the idea and it kind of makes sense. Of course, this all assumes that the system as we know remains true to its historical trend. Will your home hold its value? Not if the bubble bursts. The same goes for education. What if, in the not-too-distant future, education is commoditized and advances in edtech provide students with access to the same curriculum at a fraction of the cost? Then what? What if there's a backlash and rather than schools freeing a child's mind, they're suddenly called out for controlling or even limiting a student's potential? It's possible. Stranger things have happened. Technology is disrupting industries everywhere, and education is no exception. But traditions are hard things to break. Parents who had the opportunity to attend university, and even those who didn't, see major brand equity in a college degree. They want that for their children. And why wouldn't they? They're parents, after all. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. What's your thinking on traditional education? Is it due for an overhaul? Is a system driving us into a financial corner at a time when information is ubiquitous and learning effectively free? Let us know what you think by leaving a comment on the Inside Asia LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter page. Review and rate this episode wherever you download and listen to podcasts, and visit us and subscribe to Inside Asia on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We have over a hundred episodes to choose from, featuring in-depth conversations with some of the sharpest and most well-informed insiders in Asia. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. <laughs>